Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. You need to turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 is where we're at today as we continue on in our study of this great letter. Last week, we looked at a very intense scene in Galatians where the Apostle Paul confronted the Apostle Peter like directly to his face. And it is important for us to remember that this wasn't over some secondary matter of preference or style. Paul makes clear in the text that we looked at last week and in the text that we will look at this week that it was the very truth of the gospel that was at stake. And that is why his tone is so urgent, so severe, so serious. It wasn't just a matter of who eats what with whom, but rather that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And after walking through that text last week, we took away these three applications. Number one. Even the best leaders can make some serious mistakes sometimes. And when they do, they need to be confronted. But this confrontation must be pursued very carefully. We saw that in the life of Peter and Paul last week. We see that in the life of the church even today. Secondly, we said that confrontation, whether it be of a leader or simply of a brother in Christ, though painful, is often necessary. And is helpful for the growth of that individual, actually both individuals involved. And it's helpful to safeguard the truth of the gospel. And confrontation, when it is done rightly and when it is done well, is ultimately an act of love. And it's good for everyone involved. And then thirdly, we talked about how the gospel breaks down barriers. It breaks down ultimately the barrier between us and God. But how in the world could a holy God, a righteous God, have a relationship with a sinful man? Only through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only because Jesus died for us and was buried and rose again can a holy God have a relationship with a sinful man. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the barrier that stood between us and God has been broken down. And we can have fellowship with him. We can have a relationship. We can have friendship with him by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the gospel breaks down that great barrier that is vertical and it also breaks down horizontal barriers. Things that would keep us separated, different backgrounds, different preferences, different histories, different upbringings, different whatevers. The gospel breaks down those barriers and makes us into one family with one Lord, one message, one gospel, one baptism. Makes us into one family, not Jewish Christians over here and Gentile Christians over here, black Christians over there, white Christians over here, rich Christians here, poor Christians there. No, we are Christians together because of the gospel and for the sake of the gospel. We want to see that becoming more and more realized in our lives and in this church as the days and weeks and years go by, that we would be more unified because of the gospel and for the sake of the gospel. This week, we're going to see the scene between Peter and Paul unfold further. There's a little bit of debate about when exactly that conversation ends and Paul's exhortation to the church in Galatia begins. But no matter where you put the closing quotation mark, the force of this passage cannot be missed. This, what we will look today, is one of the clearest assertions of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the entire Bible. And this doctrine of justification by faith alone is of utmost importance to the church. What we are going to talk about today is highly significant. In fact, if we misunderstand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, we will lose the gospel and the church will be destroyed ultimately. 
Martin Luther said something pretty significant right in the middle of the Protestant Reformation about the doctrine of justification by faith. It'll be on the screen. He said, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. If the article of justification be once lost, then is all true Christian doctrine lost. That's a pretty weighty statement. In other words, if we mess up the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ, we lose all good Christian doctrine. This is Martin Luther. said that a long time ago. David Platt said it in a similar way in more modern language when he said this, justify is a mega word in Christianity. Luther claimed that justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin referred to it as the hinge upon which everything turns. The doctrine of justification was at the very heart of the Reformation and it is at the heart of Christianity. So so when we talk today, we are not talking about some secondary thing off in a corner. We are talking about the very heart of the gospel. We are talking about the very foundation of the church in so many ways. And so I want you to pay very close attention today as we lay some foundation. So we are talking today, to to make it crystal clear, we are talking today about justification by faith from the text in Galatians chapter 2. And since we are talking about something so significant, it is fitting before we even dive into the text, to define some terms, to to define some vocabulary words. And there are three of them in particular that we'll spend some time on in the introduction today, clarifying what we mean by these words before we dive into the text and see what the Bible says about these words. Okay? Justification is the first word we're going to talk about. Justification. That is a big word that we don't throw around often in our conversations with our friends or our co-workers, but it is a word that is absolutely essential to understanding the gospel. John Stott said in these verses, verses 15 and 16, an important word occurs for the first time in Galatians. It is central to the message of the epistle, central to the gospel preached by Paul, and indeed central to Christianity itself. Nobody has understood Christianity who does not understand this word. What does it mean to be justified? I'm going to lay out for you four scholars' definitions of the word justification. And and this may seem tedious to you, and you may be like, oh, just get on with it. But we want to be careful that we understand what this word means. So I'm going to to show to you four scholars' definition of the word justification, and then we will examine those four definitions and draw out some common themes. Because these guys, these four guys, are essentially saying the same thing in unique ways. So... David Platt defines justification this way. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a good word, right? That's what justification is. David Platt is right. That is what justification is. Warren Wearsby says it like this. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous. In Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby is right. I wouldn't always say that, but Warren Wearsby is right in his doctrine, in his definition of justification. John Stott says it like this Stott is a man of many words. Justification is a legal term, 
borrowed from the law courts. It is the exact opposite of condemnation. To condemn is to declare somebody guilty. To justify is to declare him not guilty, innocent, or righteous. In the Bible, it refers to God's act of unmerited favor by which he puts a sinner right with himself. Not only pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. That's a good word, right? And Wayne Grudem, who is a theologian, we're using Grudem's systematic theology book in our Sunday night class. Grudem says it like this, and you're familiar with this because in the past when we've talked about justification, I've used Grudem's definition exclusively with you. Wayne Grudem says this, Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. All four of those guys are right. And they each say it in a unique way with a unique emphasis, and they are rightly describing to us what justification is. I think there are four things for us to notice about justification before we move into the text today. Number one, justification is an act of God. Justification is an act of God. It is not an act of man. We cannot justify ourselves. You'll notice in the text today in Galatians that justify is in the passive voice. It's not in the active voice. It's not in you justify yourself or you do justification, but rather you are justified. You receive justification. It is in the passive voice, not something we can produce for ourselves. Justification is an act of God. Number two, justification is a legal declaration. It is a legal declaration. The picture when we talk about justification is the courtroom where we are the ones who stand accused and God is the judge. And justification is the judge saying to the accused who is truly guilty, you are righteous. He is declaring as the judge who has ultimate authority to make declarations like this, he says of the sinner who believes in Christ, you're righteous. It is a legal declaration. Number three, justification involves a sinner who believes. That's one of the things I liked about Wearsby's definition in particular. He seemed to really emphasize that when we're talking about justification, we are not talking about a good man declared righteous. We are not talking about a, 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 a worthy man declared righteous. When we talk about justification from a biblical perspective, we are talking about a sinner A wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked sinner who is guilty declared righteous by the righteous judge. It involves a sinner who is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's number three. And number four, it results in a righteous standing before God. This justification, this legal declaration results in righteous standing before God. And this righteous standing before God is positional. It is positional righteousness that will lead to practical righteousness. But when we're talking about justification, we're talking about positional righteousness. When we, we'll talk about practical righteousness when we talk about sanctification. But when we're talking about justification, we're talking about a positional righteousness. You are declared righteous and positionally you are righteous. And also when we talk about this, we need to understand that it is full and instantaneous positional righteousness. That, that 
it results in this righteous standing before God that is full and instantaneous. In other words, you either are justified or you are not justified. There's not like, well, I'm a little justified and maybe you're a lot justified. You either are declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ or you are not declared righteous by God uh, because of lack of faith in Jesus Christ. There's no middle road. There's no degrees of justification. It's like being alive. You're either alive or you're not. Not degrees of, of, maybe that's not a great illustration, but you get the point. It's pass or fail. Maybe that's a better way to say it. This, this justification results in a righteous standing before God that is positional and full and instantaneous. So that's a word about justification. You got the idea in your head? We're thinking courtroom. We're thinking sinner who deserves to be condemned. We're thinking righteous judge declaring that the sinner who should be condemned is righteous. We're thinking full positional righteousness, instantaneous, full righteousness that is legal and declared. Okay? That's justification. Second word we need to talk about is faith. That what we are saying today, what the text is going to say today, three times, it's going to beat it into your head, three times, it's going to say, we are justified by faith, not by works. We are justified by faith and not by works. So we need to spend some time talking about what is faith. And you may think that this needs no explanation. But it does. It needs explanation because we want to be crystal clear today about what we're talking about. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says that that in the modern language, we would be better served to use the word trust more often than believe. Trust more often than faith. Because in our modern usage of those words, the word believe has often come to mean simple agreement with the facts. Do you believe that Springfield is the capital of Illinois? I believe it. Do you believe that two plus two equals four? I believe it. We have, we, have, we have taken that word, and in our modern context, we have made it to be simply agreement with facts. And the word faith, we have also taken to refer to an irrational commitment to something in spite of strong evidence to the contrary. That's what we often mean by faith. You just got to have faith. I used to use the Chicago Cubs as the example of this, uh, but I can't anymore since they've won the World Series. Like, I would use Cubs fans to describe this because they would say, you just got to have faith. You just got to have faith. This is our year. You just got to have faith. Despite strong evidence to the contrary. That's not the idea of biblical faith. Biblical faith is better equated with our word trust today. And so we need, we, need to, we need to understand that. When we talk to our friends who have no background in the Bible, they do have a background in modern English. And so when you say you got to have faith, they're thinking about, like a Cubs fan, that their team's going to win the World Series. Or when you say just believe, you're going to say they're going to think, well, I, 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 I believe that Jesus died on the cross. Just like I believe that Springfield is the capital of Illinois. So we want to have a deeper understanding of what the Bible means when it uses the word faith or belief. And there are essentially three parts. Three parts of biblical faith. Track with me here. Part number one is knowledge. Part number one of true biblical faith is knowledge. It is absolutely necessary that we have some knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done. In order to have saving faith, you have to know the story. You have to have knowledge and familiarity with the story of the gospel. 
Paul says it like this in Romans 10, 14. He says, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? His logic there is nobody can believe in a Jesus they haven't heard about. Nobody can have saving faith in Jesus if they haven't heard about his death, burial, and resurrection. But make no mistake about it. Simple knowledge of the message of the gospel does not equal saving faith. James talks about the demons in chapter 2, right? He says, oh, you believe God is one? That's great. The demons believe and they tremble. So their knowledge of the truth about who Jesus is, the truth about who God is, does not equal saving faith. So first, first part of biblical saving faith is knowledge. You have to have some familiarity with the message of the gospel, which is why we preach the gospel, right? People can't believe in something they haven't heard of. People can't trust in one that they don't know. And so we go and we preach the gospel so that they will at least know the message. And there are billions who don't know. They don't have access to that knowledge. And so we go. And so we send others with the message of the gospel so that people can hear, so that they can believe. Make sense? Part number one is knowledge. Part number two is approval. This is a step in the right direction. So when someone hears the message of the gospel, in order to have biblical saving faith, they must also agree with or approve that message. It is necessary that we approve and agree that the facts about who Jesus is and what he has done are indeed true. You see the difference? It's one thing to be familiar with the story. It's another to say, it happened. I agree that it happened. We know lots of people who are familiar with the story of the gospel, and they say, you people just made it up. Peter, James, and John, they made up this elaborate story to promote their own life and to promote their own system. It didn't really happen. There are people that will say, oh, I know the story. I'm familiar with the story, but I don't, I don't believe it really happened. We must not only have knowledge, but also approval or agreement with the factual truth of the message. Make sense? But even if you have that, that doesn't save you. Even if you say, I know the story about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and I affirm that it is true and it really happened, that won't save you. There must be the third part of biblical saving faith that is personal trust. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. I've told you this story before about a missionary who was out in a tribal area and he was trying to translate the Bible into the language of the people, the local language, and he found that they didn't have a word for faith. You've heard me tell this story before. They didn't have a word for faith and he was struggling to try to, try to say, how do I communicate the idea of faith to a group of people who don't have a word for faith? And he was sitting in his hut one day and a local man came running in and he plopped himself down on a chair and he said, oh... It's so good for me to rest my whole weight on this chair. And the missionary said, that's it. That's the idea of faith. Not just knowing that's a chair and not just affirming that chair would hold me if I sat on it, but really resting your whole weight deep into that chair. That's what personal trust looks like. My friend Matt often uses the image of a bridge to describe this, right? If you come to a river or a chasm or a canyon... 
and, and, you, and you come to the edge of it and you see a bridge, it's one thing to say, that's a bridge. It's another thing to say, that bridge would hold me if I were to walk on it. Like I'm looking at it and the structure and the supports, they seem right. It seems reasonable that that bridge would hold me if I were to walk out on it. Neither of those things on their own are saving faith. Saving faith looks like walking across the chasm on the bridge. Really trusting the bridge to hold you as you move across the chasm. Does that make sense? And what I'm saying to you is that when we talk about knowledge and agreement or approval and personal trust, all three of those things must be present in order for it to be called biblical saving faith. Mental assent is not saving faith. And I want to say that to you as forcefully and passionately as I can today in this room because I believe that nearly every one of you have mental assent to the gospel. But I would be a fool if I thought that meant you were trusting Jesus for your salvation. I'm inviting you today out onto the bridge. Not just to stand there and say, Jesus died for my sins and rose again, and, and I affirm that that is true, but I'm inviting you to rest your whole weight on Jesus today. And hear me clearly, you can't do that third part without the first two parts. You can't say, I'm going to rest my whole weight on Jesus, but I'm not really sure he's going to hold me. I'm not really sure he'll hold up to the task. All three of these elements are present in biblical saving faith. Without all three of these elements, one will not be saved. So I want to encourage you to consider where you may be struggling or lacking today. I talked to a young man in my office earlier this week who is lacking knowledge. Lacking knowledge of the story. Who is this Jesus and what has he done? Good news is that's the one we can address pretty easily. I can tell you who Jesus is and what he has done. Those other two are gifts. So while we answer questions and we beg people to believe, we also pray that God would give people faith, biblical saving faith. So we've talked a little bit about justification. We've talked about faith. What is faith? Finally, we need to talk a little bit about what are works of the law. Because the point of the text today, three times he beats it into our heads, we are justified... By faith in Christ, not by works of the law. What does he mean by works of the law? Well, Paul uses this phrase to refer to the legalistic approach to justification. That is, by following the law, I will prove myself righteous before God. In other words, in an effort to, it, it, it is an effort to obey the law of God to such an extent that God would declare a person righteous based on their performance. It's not the idea like biblical justification where we would come in and say, God, I'm a sinner, I appeal to Jesus, and I appeal to your grace for my justification. It's you coming in with your list of your resume of your good works and saying, God, look at all these good things I have done. It is obvious that I am righteous. That's what Paul means by works of the law, working in such a way that you would earn your way to God. And hear me clearly. This is not how anyone has ever or will ever be justified before God. No one will be justified by works of the law. No one will stand before God on the day of judgment and say, here's my list of righteous deeds. You must declare me righteous because I am righteous. No one is in that condition. We all need Jesus. We all need grace. All right, so, so justification happens by faith in Jesus Christ 
not by works of the law. Now that we've got some handle on what all those big ideas are, let's read it in the text. Start in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 with me. <clears throat> but we are studying carefully 15 and 16. 11 to 14 was last week. This is what God's word says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Let's pray together. God, we, we are thankful for justification by faith alone. Thankful that you, because of Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, would look at sinners like us and declare us righteous. What a gift this is. What a gift that many in this room have received. And I pray for those of us who have received it that you will help us to delight in that gift today and declare it as we leave this place to others around us. And God, for those who have not received that gift today, I pray that you give it to them. I pray that you teach them about their sinfulness and that they deserve only punishment. I pray that you teach them that Jesus died in their place and that because he died and rose again, they can be justified. I pray that you give them faith real faith, biblical faith, to rest their whole weight on Jesus Christ. Declared righteous by you, the great judge, for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going we're gonna to work through this. He, Paul essentially says the same thing three times, so it will not take us long to get the weight of what he's trying to say here. But look first at verse 15. Paul, I believe here, is still talking directly to Peter. And he says to Peter, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. What Paul is doing here is he is acknowledging their common background in Judaism. Peter was from a Jewish home. He grew up in a Jewish home. Paul, Paul's pedigree in Judaism was impressive to say the least. We'll look at it a little bit later. Both of these guys who are having this conversation about justification have very Jewish backgrounds, which would have included a great deal of emphasis on keeping the law in order to be justified, keeping the law in order to be declared righteous. So they would have been very careful, both of these guys, about their diet. You remember when, when God lets down the sheet and shows Peter all these foods and says, Rise, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Peter objects immediately. He says, I've never eaten anything unclean like that. I've never done anything like that. 
They would have been very careful about their diet. They would have been very careful about Sabbath keeping and other holidays. They would have been very strict observers and participants in the sacrificial system and everything that happened in the temple. In other words, this is how these men grew up and what their lives had been all about, trying to do enough good that God would declare them righteous. So Paul is laying out to Peter a reminder about their background in legalism, their background in justification by works of the law. His mention of sinners from among the Gentiles is simply to distinguish Peter and Paul's former desire to justify themselves through works from those Gentiles who care nothing about the law and nothing about obedience to the law. Maybe it helps to see the first word of verse 16 to understand what Paul means. He says in 15, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, in other words, in spite of their lives of legalism, both Paul and Peter had come to know that justification is not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is basically going to say the same thing three times in this text to beat it into our heads like Luther says. This first bit is the general declaration of the doctrine of justification by faith alone and not by works. Next, what you're going to see is not the general doctrinal statement, but the personal experience that Paul and Peter have had. Look at verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Again, here in this part of the verse, Paul helps us feel the force of this by saying, even we, even we, Peter, the guys who grew up in legalism, the guys who grew up trying to be justified by works of the law, even we have believed in Jesus in order to be justified, not by works of the law. These two guys had had their eyes opened to the truth of the gospel. And they had trusted in Christ for their justification, rather than, by tr- than trusting in themselves and their own righteousness for justification. He, he lays it out as a general declaration. And he says, and this isn't just an idea, Peter. This is something we've experienced. Even we have trusted in Jesus Christ for our justification. Paul elaborates on this more in Philippians chapter 3. I want you to read this with me. Philippians chapter 3, it'll be on the screen, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Stop there. Catch what he's saying there? He says, if anyone could be confident in the flesh, if anyone thought they could be justified by works of the law in the flesh, it's me. Paul says that. And then in verse 7, he says, but. But 
Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Listen to verse 9. So that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Catch what He does there? He says, I know what it's like to try to have a righteousness of my own derived from the law. If anyone could have confidence in that, it was me. But, but I know that I need a better righteousness, not a righteousness of my own that comes from a law, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, that's the righteousness I need. And that's the righteousness that is given to us in justification. This is what Paul is talking about. And when he talks to Peter, he says, Peter, we, we know We know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith. And we have believed in Jesus Christ to be justified by him and not by works of the law. So he says it as a personal experience, and then he wraps it up by stating it as a universal principle. He says at the end of verse 16, Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Hear that? I mean, do you really hear that? By works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You cannot work your way to God. You cannot possibly stand in the courtroom with your good works and be declared righteous. It will never happen. Ever. And coming to realize that is the best thing that can ever happen to you. Coming to realize that your effort up will get you nowhere the best thing that could ever happen to you. Because that will lead you to lean on someone else for righteousness. To rest your whole weight on the Lord Jesus Christ for righteousness. David Platt sums up this section by saying these powerful words. He says, in justification, God takes a sinner, a guilty sinner, and declares him righteous. The holy judge of the universe takes a sinner who is in willful rebellion, deserving only of a guilty verdict, and he says, not guilty. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. It includes God's once-for-all forgiveness of sins and his unchangeable declaration that we are righteous in his sight. You are at peace with God. You're innocent. You're not guilty anymore. And this is the gospel. It's good news that we're celebrating today, right? That a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You can be declared righteous by trusting in Jesus Christ. I've got bad news and good news today. Bad news is this. By works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You cannot and will not. I cannot and will not obey the law in such a way that the judge of the universe will declare me righteous or you righteous. It's like running on the treadmill. That approach to justification is like running on a treadmill. I hate running on the treadmill. It's miserable. You will sweat. You will work. And you will get nowhere. 
Nowhere. The sweat will just pile up at your feet. And you've seen nothing. And you've gone nowhere. And that is what many, maybe even in this room, are experiencing by trying to be justified by works of the law. Trying to work your way up to God. That somehow you will do enough good things that he will declare you to be righteous and it will never happen. It will never happen. Bad news is, no flesh will be justified by works of the law. Good news is, justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Real justification. Like, of the guilty sinner, God will say, not guilty. Of the guilty sinner, God will say, righteous. Not by works, but because of faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about that word faith at the beginning of the day. I hope you know the story. The story of how Christ died for our sins. That is a power-packed statement, is it not? That Christ died for our sins. That Christ, the perfect Son of God, who came and lived on this earth without sin, totally spotless, died? Makes no sense at all. Because we know that the wages of sin is death. That death is a result of sin. And if Jesus never sinned, then Jesus didn't deserve to die. This is a glorious truth that Christ died for us. He didn't die for himself. He died for us as our substitute. He took our sin upon himself and suffered the punishment that we deserve. This is really good news. No one does this for you except Jesus. Steps in and takes the punishment that we deserve. Christ died for our sins suffered the punishment that we deserve. And they buried him because that's what you do with dead people. You bury them. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures of what the Bible says. He died for our sins and rose again. He took our sins upon himself. He suffered the punishment we deserve. He died and he rose again. He beat death. He beat sin. He beat hell. And he offers us victory over sin and death and hell. Not by working our way toward it, but by trusting in him. Not by doing the work ourselves, but by trusting in the work that he has done. We rest in him. We get his credit. We get his righteousness credited to our account. This is the best news ever. I'm not telling you sweat your way to heaven. I'm telling you rest on Jesus to be declared righteous. And I'm inviting you to that today. So know the story. Know the story. And agree with the story. And rest your whole weight on him. Walk out on the bridge. Some of you have never, ever done that. Some of you, this picture that Matt uses all the time is profound because I feel like that's a lot of people in the church. Regularly in the church. Deeply involved in the church. They stand at the edge and they say, that is a bridge. And that bridge will hold anyone who will walk out on it. And they themselves have never walked a foot on it. I'm inviting you today to trust Jesus, not just to know about him, not just to answer the trivia questions, but to rest your weight in him. Stop working and trust him for justification. Now hear me clearly, Paul is going to say that once that happens, you'll get a new heart, you'll get a new life, and then you will work in a whole different way for his kingdom, but that's not the message today. That's part of it, but that's not today's part. Today I'm inviting you to trust in Jesus Christ be justified.
It's the only way. The only way. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for teaching us the truth about justification. Thank you for showing us the futility of our efforts to justify ourselves before you by works of the law. Thank you for sending your son to die for us and to rise again to take the punishment that we deserve and to conquer sin and death and hell. Thank you for this glorious good news that justification comes through faith in Christ. Again, we pray for many in this room who are resting their whole weight on Jesus. Help them to delight in their justification and help them to declare the hope of the gospel to their neighbors and to the nations. God, my heart is especially burdened today for many, I believe, who know and agree but do not trust. My heart is especially burdened today for many who are on the edge and have never stepped onto the bridge. For many who will not rest their weight on the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray today that you'll give them faith to do that. That you will give them this profound, radical, deep trust in Christ. That they would depend on him. For their justification. On his work not their own. God, I pray that you do this. Only you can. And I pray that you do it for your own sake. Not just for their sake, but for your name's sake. I pray these things in Jesus' name.